welcome you. And as I mentioned, we're in Advent, and that word means arrival or coming. This is the four Sundays where the church around the world, this is not commanded, but it's just something the church is free to do. It's a way that we're tied in with what, uh, what the church is doing around the world. But these are four Sundays where we pay special attention to uh, God becoming man. That's the incarnation and uh, coming to earth. So this morning we're in Malachi, beginning in chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, the text is there in the order of worship. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 17. Now you're probably thinking, Malachi 2, 17, obvious Christmas passage. Um, but actually, it, it, in a way, it, it, uh, it is. Hope that'll hope that'll come out. Um, have any of you ever participated in a Passover Seder? Has anybody ever... Let's see a few, few hands have, have done this. And uh, that... This question I'm going to raise, this may or may not have been something that you saw when you, when you um, participated in this because sometimes Christians will lead in Passover seders, but they're doing so in a way in which they see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. So they'll explain things differently than a Jewish household would, or they'll, they might even omit certain things. But in a, in a practicing Jewish household, in a Passover seder, there's a cup of wine on the table that's for someone, but it goes unused. And there may even be an empty chair, an empty place setting at the table for this person for whom this cup of wine was poured. And then at some point in in the meal, someone from the family, it might be a young child, if there's a child in the family, is sent to look outside the home and like look up and down the street and see if this person is coming to the mill. You know who it is? And, it, and it's not the Messiah. It's Elijah. That cup of wine is called the cup of Elijah. Now, why is that? And, and, and by the way, getting at this is, will help you understand the Gospels because when you read the Gospels, what we're going to be talking about is just sort of in the air that this is still in people's memory. The last prophetic book in the Hebrew Bible... In a Hebrew Bible, the last book is 2 Chronicles. But in what we call the Old Testament, the last book we put there is the last prophetic book, and it's Malachi. And the last prophecy in the last prophetic book is that God is going to send a messenger. And the messenger is Elijah. That God's going to send... There already has been a prophet named Elijah, very powerful prophet. And God says, I'm going to send him back. And he says that over 400 years before the Gospels. I mean, think a much longer stretch than we've been a country. Now, here's the thing. When the fulfillment of this prophecy happens in the Gospels, virtually no one recognizes it, even the guy who's fulfilling it, even the man who is the fulfillment of that promise. And and here's something, again, this can help you understand the Gospels before I read it, is that God says, I'm going to send my messenger. It's going to be Elijah. And then I'm going to come. And I'm going to do two things when I come. And what's baffling is that the messenger comes and the Lord comes, and it seems like the things that God said He was going to do aren't done. 
It, it was so confusing that even the fulfillment, even the messenger didn't understand. And this, guys, this is very important to us because, and I hope this will come out, we live between two advents. The first advent happened 2,000 years ago. The second advent, we don't know when it will occur. But both are promised to be sudden. Both are promised to be unexpected. They are the very coming of God to us. And we need to understand that everything God promises that He's going to do, He will do them. Some have been done. Some are yet to come. Which is which? Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I know I have told this story before, but I've got to tell it again. Um, nothing dramatic, but it just it bears directly on what we're looking at this morning. And I asked uh, my son's permission if I could tell this, not to embarrass him. Uh, you know, sometimes at bedtime, and uh, when we're going around saying goodnight, getting everybody squared away, not every night, but sometimes we'll kind of do a little theology review. And uh, one question I like to ask, I've asked all three of mine this multiple times, is God real or is He pretend? And it's always good to hear He's real, which is true. Um, One night I asked my son Henry this question that I've asked John and Betsy too, and that was, is God actually here? And this particular night I was sitting on the bed with Henry and he said, yes. And I said, so He's really here in this room? And Henry said, very orthodoxly, yes. And I've mentioned this before, but Henry then asked me two questions, and it, 
The only way I know to describe it is it moved me from feeling like I was up over a conversation to the conversation went up over me. Because he said, is he in the closet? And I realized that the answer is yes. And then Henry said, is he on the bed with us? You know, that feeling of, he is. And, I, and again, I can't, I can't convey to you a feeling. That's, that's the problem of some, you know, illustrations like this. I can't make you feel what I felt, but it was the sense of, you know, there's a flippant way to say, isn't it great that God is with us? Isn't it great that God is everywhere? You know, when Nellie goes to London, God will be right there with her. When we're here in Greenville, He's right here with us. There's a flippant way to say, isn't that great? And it is great. That like, if, if I get diagnosed with cancer, or I lose my job, or just the bottom falls out, He is there, and that is real, and it is great. And if I'm in the car with two of my friends, and one of them is being a jerk, and we're driving somewhere, and the one who's being a jerk gets out of the car first, and then it's just me and the other friend, and it's like time to dissect this person... He's there. You know, lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, in this prophecy, you've got God's people. Here's where this is in Israel's history. There have been all these prophets either around the time of or right before Malachi. And it's these names. It's, kind of, it's like the clean pages of your Bible. You know, the Zephaniah and, the, and, the, and those kind of people. And this is after a long string of prophets. And they have prophesied there's going to be this great restoration of Israel's glory and the restoration of the kingdom and the temple and God's bright presence and Israel being brought to prominence. And you basically have a culture looking around going, I'm not seeing that. And, it, it, you know, commentators will say, in Israel, this is sort of a time of disillusionment and even cynicism because people are, are essentially saying, I, you know, I'm just not seeing the special presence of God and His hand at work. And the prophet Malachi, speaking for God, comes and says, do you really want God to come near? Do you really want God to come near? Well, He is. Now, He will not do it for hundreds of years. God's timetable is, as many of you know, not like ours. But here's what I want to look at. Because the charge is so strange that's leveled against God's people that they have wearied God. So first off, how has God been wearied? And then what does God do about it? How has God been wearied? What has wearied Him? And then what does God do about it? Now, you get this in verse 17, the first part. And I'll just throw this out just to kind of have a feel for the book of Malachi because we don't talk about it a lot. This little scenario happens six or seven times where the prophet will say, you've done such and such. And then he'll, he'll almost speak for the people saying, how have we done such and such? And then he'll explain. And this is one of those places. Verse 17 at the beginning. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And here's what Malachi is saying. The Lord is weary of two lines of remarks. And they're very similar. They're, just, they're two different ways of saying, what's the deal with God? And where is He? The first kind of remark says, why does God treat evil as good? That doesn't mean, why does God look at immorality and think it's moral? He's not going to do that. But it's saying, and this is an old question, this is as relevant as this morning. Why do people who don't believe in God and they don't care about His concerns and they don't want to obey and follow Him, why do they have great lives and I do want to know Him and I do want to follow Him and I've got a crummy life? So like, yeah, go do evil and I'll be good to you. Try to follow me and I'll punish you. And the second question stems from that is, where is the God of justice? And another way of saying that is, where is the God of fairness? Where is the divine fairness? You know, that person hates God or is indifferent toward God and they've got a great job. I need a job and he won't give me one. Where is the fairness in that? I long to have a spouse and I want to love my spouse and take care of my spouse the way he talks about. And I want a spouse who loves him too. And this person over here who has no interest in spiritual things has a great marriage. They found a great person. Where is the fairness in that? Now, feel, if you can, the uniqueness of how God framed this. Because you have a God who has no body. He does not experience fatigue like we do. God is a spirit. And He has all life and energy and joy within Himself. When does God ever speak in terms of being tired? Even when He made the Sabbath day, it doesn't say, and He was worn slap out from making everything. It just says He worked and then He rested. His choice. But He sends Malachi to say, you need to know that God that you're talking about is wearied by these lines of comments. And He is weary of them. And it's worth pausing before we, we, you know, go to what does God do about it to say it is possible, it was possible then and it's possible now to think that, that is what's coming out of our mouth is just, you know what, I'm very frustrated, you know, frustrated with God right now and I, I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to say it. I'm going to say that I am angry at God, that I am mad at Him. And here's the thing. Scripture always, it always moves us toward being realists. It never says, well, pretend. It moves you toward authenticity. It moves you toward being real reverently. And there are all kinds of places in the Bible that that do ask those questions. Why do the evil have great lives and, God, your people have crummy lives? Why do you look on so much evil and suffering and you don't do something about it? But the way it's usually stated in Scripture is, Lord, how long? How long is evil going to flourish and righteousness suffer? How long are your people going to have to experience the suffering and pain that we go through? How long? That's a good way to frame the question. It's not wise to say, God, how dare you? 
God, why, why are you so unfair? Scripture would move us toward very, very uh, direct honesty and authenticity, harnessed to reverence, not to flippancy. And God's people had become flippant and said, well, you know, God's not even fair. And Malachi says, the Lord is wearied of those kinds of comments. And so what does He do about it? God says, all right, you, you want me to make my presence known? In a sense, here I come. And there are actually going to be two arrivals, two two advents, we might say. The first is, I'm going to send my messenger, and then I'm going to come. First, my messenger will arrive, and then I will arrive. First, the messenger. Look in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, here's the interesting thing. That's not the first time that promise has been made in the Bible. That years before that, almost 400, maybe plus 400 years before that, the prophet Isaiah made an even fuller, almost identical prophecy. And the interesting thing is, you're hearing it on the radio right now. It's from Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low, Uh, the crooked straight and the rough places plain, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of whom? The Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for whom? Our God. That they had already heard this prophecy, and Malachi underscores it, that the messenger will be sent by God, he'll come, And then the Lord will come. Well, how does this play out? And and again, this can help you understand the Gospels, but it was very confusing living through it. When John the Baptist showed up, and you read about this in the Gospels, the Gospels make it very clear, he's the fulfillment of that promise. He's the guy literally out in the wilderness, just like it said. He's preparing the way for the Lord. Now, what you need to know is, in the, in the Gospel of John, some people came to John the Baptist and said, Are you Elijah? They'd read their Bibles. Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said, Nope. And then, a good bit later, people asked Jesus, What's the deal about Elijah coming? And Jesus says, It was John the Baptist. And just, you know, as a side note, for no extra charge... That, that should tell us something, that anybody can be fulfilling a role that God has for them, and you may not even know it. That is, I'm sure, happening in this room right now, that you can be fulfilling a role for God, and you don't even know the role in His plan. Well, John the Baptist comes, and let's just say he doesn't lack for confidence. He shows up and he starts saying things like, I baptize you with water. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? It was not normal for Jewish people to undergo a washing like that unless you had experienced something that made you ceremonially unclean. 
But that was something that a Gentile who was becoming a Jew would do. Like, there's this final, like, washing off of all that icky Gentile idol-worshipingness off of you, and now you're part of Israel. And John the Baptist comes along and he says, everybody needs washing. Judea needs washing. And it says that he doesn't just baptize, he's a preacher. What's his sermon? It says he preached a baptism of repentance. Man, that's an important word in the Bible. What is repentance? Is repentance straighten up and fly right? No. It's a turn. And I really want you to hear this. Some of you have heard me say this a hundred times, and it may be the first time you hear it, but I want you to hear this. In God's Word, Old and New Testament, repentance is not, I've been doing bad things, and I'm going to start doing great things. That's being your own Savior. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from things that you're ashamed of about yourself, ways that you know you haven't obeyed God, and turning from things that we are terribly proud of about ourselves. I don't cuss. I return letters. I have already sent out my Christmas cards and structured my New Year's party. You know, I, um, I rest on Sundays. I am a good parent. You turn from what you're ashamed of and what you're proud of and you turn to the Lord and say, have mercy on me. And you receive His mercy and you receive His cleansing and then you live out of that. It does bring behavior change, but it's not on the front end behavior change. It's a turning and asking for mercy. And John comes and says, that's the deal. That's how you prepare for the Lord's coming. And he would say things like, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me, and he will baptize you with fire. Does that sound familiar? That's straight out of Malachi 3. And he says, you know, other comforting things like his winnowing fork is in his hands, like this pitchfork that you fling hay around with or wheat. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the axe will be laid to the root of the trees. And then finally, one day he sees Jesus and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John begins to withdraw. You know, he must increase and I have to decrease. But what you hear John saying very boldly is, I'm coming to prepare you for the coming of the Lord. And when He comes, there will be cleansing. He'll take away sin. And there will be judgment. And Jesus comes, and I'm sure John said, this is going to be awesome. And he watches Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He melts the entire Roman army, right? He calls down a thermonuclear strike on all pagan worship. He teaches. He heals. He serves. No fireworks. No assassinations. No big shake. There's some confrontation, but no real shakedown. On one occasion, he's talking to a Roman centurion, and instead of doing what maybe the Messiah was expected to do, to go like, and then there's like a pair of Roman boots with smoke coming out of them, 
One day he's talking to a Roman centurion and he commends me. He says, this guy has more faith than almost anybody I've met in Israel. He's incredible. Commends him. It is so confusing that when John the Baptist is in prison, he sends... He can't go. He's in prison. He sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one that we waited for or are we waiting for someone else? That is incredible. Mr. Confidence saying, you're not doing what the Lord was supposed to do when He came. I thought I was coming to get the way ready for you. You're not doing what the prophets said. And get this. Jesus in His own ministry said, if anyone hears my words and does not obey them, if you hear my words and you do not obey them, what, you'll be annihilated? He says, no, I I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, that would be, from John's perspective and a lot of other people's perspective, totally confusing. And here's the thing that we get to see that John could not see at that time, and it's this. The only way that God's people... Because the problem is not just the priests. The problem is not just the sons of Levi. It's all God's people. They're named in the passage because spiritual life sort of is very influenced and trickled down from the example they're setting. But all God's people need cleansing. And the only way we could be cleansed would be if the Lord came. No one was expecting this. And He took the judgment that they deserved. The only way God's people could be made clean was for the Lord to come and not exert judgment, but to absorb it on Himself to be treated like He's the liar, like He's the abuser, like He's the person who uses God's name as His own little exclamation point. That He's the hateful person. And to absorb what that deserves from a just God. And and I would say this. If you're visiting, I, I, I really wish you would come back because this is the point that we keep coming back to over and over and over again is that Jesus doesn't just come to set an example about how to be a kind person and to give sacrificially. He takes the justice of God on His people's behalf to make us clean. But here's the deal. you got all these prophecies about judgment. And look in verse 5. God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And you know, you read it this way, you think, okay, He's going to do that in one fell swoop. I'm going to show up, cleanse, two bullet points, cleanse, judge. He comes and He cleanses. But where's the judgment? On, on all the evil. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. How is that relevant to us? It is utterly relevant. 
Because, friends, we are awaiting a second advent. And at the second advent, it will be the coming of the Lord suddenly. But do not in your mind's eye picture a Jewish peasant. That will be unbelievably inaccurate. Do not picture a baby in a stable. But picture somebody who is so unlike us that when one of his very, very, very closest friends, the Apostle John, the one that wrote the books in the Bible, that when he saw him, he fell down as if he was dead. It frightened him and struck such awe in him that he fell down like a dead man. He will come to judge the earth. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Is, or is what we're supposed to do with that straighten up and fly right? No. That wasn't the answer for His first coming, and it's not the answer for His second coming. How do we prepare for the coming Advent? The same way you prepare for the first is repent. Uh, Martin Luther, when he posted those 95 theses on the door, the first thesis, the first thing he said was, when Jesus calls someone to follow Him, He calls that person into a life, a lifestyle of repenting. And to be ready, really, biblically, for Advent is not to get all your to-do list done by December 24th. Please, please take this seriously. To be ready for Advent is not to accomplish your to-do list by December 24th. It is for us to hear the Word of God today and to repent. If you're visiting, I'll just mention this since since you haven't been here. We just went through a series on the Ten Commandments. We looked at a different command every week. And every week, it brought us all up short. But the question is, what are we doing with that? I mean, what are we doing with the fact that we have other gods that we really like better than Him? And under great stress, that we will go to it, or Him, or Her, rather than to the living God, who will give us life. I mean, it is a step in the right direction to say, yep, I have, enough, I have idols in my life, but will we smash them? And say, I don't want those. And there's a part of me that wants them, but the real me doesn't want those. I want you. Are we working seven days a week? When we talked about the Sabbath, I tried to bend over backwards and do contortions not to give you a, here's what you can do on Sundays, and here's what you can't do, or exactly when Sunday starts. I, I hope you found it. great freedom, but are we just working like slaves with no margins when the Lord has said, I've set you free from slavery? Is God's name our little exclamation point? To emphasize something or to be funny? Of course it is. That's who we are. Are there people in this room that we hate? Spend enough time together as a church 
and these living stones start to kind of grind on each other. All of us. Are there breaches of relationship in this room? And we've just said, well, you know, and this is kind of the blanket statement. This is our way of saying I'm not going to deal with it. It is what it is. It is what it is. Are we lying? We're capable of all... Do you dabble in magic? You might think, that's a weird application. You know, the Bible never says magic and sorcery doesn't work. In fact, several passages demonstrate that it does. It says, it will hurt you. But the appeal is, it's a way to tap into spiritual power and not have to mess with Him. It could be anything. It could be adultery. It could be our... What a season to talk about coveting. The way that we prepare for Advent is not, I'll do this December 25th, it is today to hear God's Word and say, you know what, if you have accomplished the work to cleanse people like me, then the big thing I need to do right now is not run one more errand this afternoon. The thing I need to do is I need to repent. For the first time or for the millionth time. And say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then out of that, to live differently. Um, I, I couldn't not make a Voyage of the Dawn Treader reference. I mean, please. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if this is in the movie. It's in the book. Um, the Dawn Treader sails so far that it basically goes to where the sky meets the ocean. And that it doesn't just look that way, but they actually see a blue glassy wall meet the sea. And when, <clears throat> when these English children get to that point, um, there's a lamb. I wonder where Lewis got this image. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, hungry now for the first time for many days. And it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What? said Edmund. Is there a way into Aslan's country from our world too? There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself, towering above them, scattering light from his mane. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? I shall be telling you all the time said Aslan. But I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. Everyone in this room needs something to span between what we are over what we deserve to the presence of God. It is the finished work of Christ. And to hear that and to respond to it is all of us to repent, to repent and prepare for His coming, which will happen. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us, this is all of us, we all need repentance. We thank You that You say in Your Word that You give repentance. Oh Lord, if it was for us to concoct or stir up, we couldn't do it. Would You grant us, I pray it for every man and woman and child assembled here, all of us, would You grant us the repentance we, we need that we might have great joy at your coming. Amen.